Please do uh, be seated. Well, good morning uh, to you from me. For those of you I don't know uh, in person or online, my name's Chris, Chris Brockway. I have the real joy of uh, opening up God's Word to us this morning as we bring to a close our Devotement series, a word we thought we'd made up, but it turns out we didn't. And if you've been with us for the last three uh, or so weeks, you'll know that we've thought about the call to remember, uh, specifically the call to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we thought about the call to worship, worship in its fullest sense with all of us, with the whole of our being. And then last weekend, we thought about the call to pray, reminding ourselves that when we acknowledge and when we know who it is to whom we pray, we pray with much greater confidence uh, and with a much deeper sense of relationship. And this morning, we come to the call to study God's Word. We come to the challenge of being a people passionate about God's Word. In fact, that's one of our nine stated values uh, as a church community here at CBC, uh, that we will seek increasingly to be a people who are centered on the Bible and seeking to live uh, God's direction for life. Of course, that ought to be a core value of every church. If it isn't, uh, you ought to be concerned. Now, although I'd say, of course, we conclude our development series today, the very uh, uh, observant amongst you will notice that we're concluding part one of our series. And when you've had a part one, it suggests there's going to be a part two. Uh, part two will be coming uh, later in the year when we'll think about another batch of things that we should be passionate and concerned about as the people of God. Next weekend, we're really looking forward to Christine uh, kicking off our new teaching series as we think about the Old Testament character of Samson, uh, an intriguing story. If you want to do a bit of swatting up before next uh, weekend, then do read the story of Samson from beginning to end. Samson, when the weak, uh, sorry, when the strong uh, become weak, that's going to be our theme from next weekend. Well, our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 119. Now, you might be glad to hear we're not going to read the whole of Psalm 119 today. Uh, the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, in fact, it's the longest psalm as well, 176 verses. But what a brilliant psalm, especially given our, our theme today. It's a psalm that is a part of scripture that refers over and over again to scripture uh, itself. 171 of the 176 verses are a reference to other scripture verses. And if there's one thing, one thing we shouldn't miss from this psalm, it's this. is that every word that's penned by the author of this psalm is pointing to God himself. His great desire is that we wouldn't simply get stuck on the word of God, but we would come into a deeper relationship with God. And his great desire is that anyone who reads the psalm that he's penned would be refreshed, they'd be informed, they'd be renewed in their walk with God. It's said that Martin Luther of Reformation fame prized Psalm 119 so highly that he said this, he said, I would not take the whole of the world in exchange for one leaf of this psalm. What a thing to say about one psalm. I wouldn't take the whole world in exchange for it. Matthew Henry, uh, many of us um, might know, was the 18th century Bible commentator and he introduced this, or was introduced to this psalm by his father. And his father had prescribed to each of his children that they should meditate on one verse of Psalm 119 twice per year. Read it for half a year and then repeat. And he said this, that will bring you to be in love with the whole of the rest of Scripture. What a good thing to do, to meditate on one verse of this psalm uh, every day for six months and then repeat 
Perhaps it's no surprise that Matthew Henry's commentaries, his Bible commentaries, are still the most popular commentaries that there are out there today, all these years on. So if you've got a Bible, uh, do turn with me uh, to Psalm 119. Uh, We're going to be reading this morning from verse 9 onwards. Well, not to the end. It says this, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all of my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word, says the psalmist. Do you know, if there's one thing that really encourages me on a regular basis is the knowledge that people throughout history have wrestled with some of the same problems that we wrestle with even today. Throughout history, people have wrestled with the same old questions. And despite our technological advance in the way that we live today, the same question is still being wrestled with. In fact, I think because of technological progress, the psalmist's opening question in this psalm today, which he immediately goes on to answer, how can a young person keep their way pure, is perhaps even more problematic today than it was in the psalmist's day. The psalmist's question is a really good one, isn't it? How can a young person, in fact, I think, I know we're not allowed to do this, but you can cross out the word young. How can a person keep their pathway or their lifestyle pure? With so many temptations in life, not only in the real world, but especially in the online world, how can we, not just the young, but in fact all of us, establish a lifestyle which is consistent with the teachings of God? I think this is a really important question. It's a question that all Christians of all ages and all stages throughout the whole of history should have wrestled with. How can we be the people that God is calling us to be? How can we live a life that avoids all of those traps that would seek to kill our souls? How can we live in such a way that we enjoy the blessing of God and at the same time we get changed from the inside out? These are great questions. And perhaps like me, you're really keen to know the answer. This is a question I'm particularly keen to know the answer to as a church leader because I've committed the last two decades of my life plus some trying to help other people wrestle with this question. How can we live in such a way that we please God? But actually, more than that, I'm really keen to know the answer to this question personally as an individual because I desperately want to see this kind of change in my own life. Earlier this week, I started reading a fantastic book called The Imperfect Disciple. It's brilliant. I haven't finished it yet, and I know it's dangerous to recommend the book before you finished it, but the opening chapter is worth buying the book for just to read that. The author is a chap called Gerald Wilson, and he says something that I can really relate to, and maybe you can too. He says this, I take a look at my messed up soul every day. I feel completely overwhelmed and under-equipped. And so I hold on to the gospel, I grab the good news of Jesus, and I pour some of that gospel into my soul. And then I'm good to go another day. I might be crawling through that day, or I might be balled up in my bed, but the smile of God is over me continually. Day and night, his steadfast love sustains me. Sin is the problem, but Jesus is 
the solution. I'm hoping that's where the book concludes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting for a moment that everything is wrong with me spiritually. But what I am saying is that any progress that I might have made in my Christian journey up to this point was rarely a straight line journey. In fact, if you were to try and plot my journey of faith on a a straight line graph, then it would be a squiggly line full of all kinds of detours and turn backs and setbacks. Now, I know the mathematicians are thinking, how ridiculous. You can't plot a curve on a straight line graph. And yet that would reflect my life and that would reflect my journey of discipleship. But somehow it seems to me to make things worse, sometimes it feels like church is the last place where you would want to admit that your journey of faith is a squiggly mess. Too often we pretend that things are better than they really are. We pretend that our faith journeys are a straight line without a single curve on a map when at least sometimes our faith journey is a bird's nest of a mess if we were to try and plot it. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably tried all the ways of growing your faith that you've now discovered don't work. You will have discovered by now that self-help is no help whatsoever. In his book, Wilson Jarrod says this. He says, self-help is like sticking your broken hand in the blender, thinking that will somehow fix it. A brilliant image. I'm constantly putting my broken hand into the blender with self-help. You will have discovered, too, that we can fill our heads with all sorts of information. And maybe that doesn't help either. Now, good sound theology is really, really important. But we can read every single theology book and every systematic theology on the planet and not be changed by the things that we discover in those books. Jesus told a parable about that, didn't he? And he spoke of the the foolish builder. Maybe you've tried in the past signing up for the next new discipleship course or reading the next great book or the next great technique that is going to fix your journey of faith only to discover when you try and live out those simple principles, often in the real world, discipleship is not that simple. And if that's you this morning, then I think the psalmist has something to say to you today. He's saying, look, the point of this psalm is this, is we actually need an old approach to an old problem. It's an ancient approach that has to be continually discovered and rediscovered and reapplied in our lives in the here and now. You see, what the psalmist discovers is that God doesn't only want to change our behavior, our external situation, but actually he wants to change us from the inside out, from the hearts. What's so interesting to me is that the psalmist immediately gives an answer to his own question, how can a person live a God-honoring life? And in doing so, he's talking about more than a surface-level change, isn't he? He's talking about more than us just simply modifying our behavior. In fact, he's suggesting a much better solution. The psalmist goes on to speak about a deep change, a change that's enough to put somebody on the right path for life, a, a path that's got a much greater chance of being a straight line than a squiggly line. And even then, I suspect the line would still have some curves in it because of our sinful natures. In just seven short verses of Scripture, we get the answer to every believer's greatest wrestle. And this is a message for any of us this morning who might just occasionally struggle with sin. Three things. The first is to seek, verse 10, seek God with your whole heart. Secondly is to hide, verse 11, to hide God's word in your heart. And then thirdly, verse 15, to ponder, to ponder God's ways 
in your heart. Now, there are three points, and perhaps unsurprisingly, they're all about heart engagement. So the first thing, verse 10, to, to seek. Now, my guess is that you probably, like me, none of them are in the room, I hasten to add, you probably know a few Christians who know their Bibles inside out and really well, and they are still miserable and cantankerous human beings. Do you know any of those? Stop nudging the person next to you, that doesn't help. And Jesus, of course, in his parable, called such people foolish builders. And the house came tumbling down. But in all that the psalmist is saying today, he's talking about more than just head engagement, isn't he, with the word of God. The foolish builder did that, Jesus said. The psalmist's great desire is that, yes, we'll engage our head, but he's talking too about a heart engagement in the ways of God, to be like the wise builder that Jesus spoke of. He's saying, look, that's the way true transformation comes. It's not enough to simply know the word of God in our heads, but the word of God needs to know us. It needs to be applied at the heart level. I really love the word that the psalmist uses in verse 10 when he immediately describes the first way that a person can keep their lifestyle God-honoring. He says, I will seek you. I will seek you with all of my heart. Now, as you can imagine, with five children, I get to play quite a few games of hide-and-seek in my life. And if there's one thing I've noticed in the game of hide-and-seek, it's this is you never, ever win a game of hide-and-seek if you don't actively join in the game. Hide-and-seek is not a game, is it, for couch potatoes. And the psalmist is saying the same thing here about discovering the things of God. He's saying, look, it takes intent. If you want to discover the things of God, then you have to passionately pursue the things of God. You've got to get your bottom off the spiritual couch. I could have been ruder there. The psalmist is saying this isn't a passive, reluctant pursuit, but this is an active, hungry desire to seek God's best for us through his word. It takes a heart commitment. Now, if you were with us last weekend, you might remember those words that came from our scripture reading. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. It's a promise. Jeremiah 29, 13, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart, it says in Jeremiah and the psalmist this morning is making the same commitment to God. He's saying, I'm going to seek you wholeheartedly, God. I'm going to seek you with all of my heart. There's going to be nothing half-hearted or lethargic about my relationship with you. I'm holding nothing back, absolutely nothing. This is an all-or-nothing relationship. And then in the very next sentence, we hear a cry of commitment. Do not let me stray from your commands. Lord, I'm throwing my whole heart at this journey. Don't let me map any more squiggly lines on my journey of faith. So firstly, if we want to establish a lifestyle that leads us to thrive in God with more straight lines than wiggly lines, then we have to seek out the word of God. We have to pursue it with passion with all of our hearts. We need to make the word of God so much part of our lives that it starts to shake up, shape our thinking and our words and our values, our emotions and our actions. You know, if there's one thing I've found out in life, it's this, is the more I seek, the more I find. Now, that's not only true of looking for the children's shoes before school every day, but it's also been true in my spiritual journey and my faith journey. When I seek God with all of my heart and hold nothing back, the more I discover of him and about him. The first challenge is to seek. And then we come to hide. In verse 11, the psalmist tells us the second way that he thrives in this God-honoring lifestyle. He says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Or you might be thinking, well, that's a beautiful piece of poetry, isn't it? But how on earth do we hide the Word of God in our hearts? What does that mean? Well, I think the message version of the Bible puts this verse, verse 11, so helpfully. It says, I've banked your promises in the vault of my heart so that I won't sin myself bankrupt. Isn't that good? I've banked your promises in the vault of my heart so I won't sin myself bankrupt. The psalmist is saying, look, uh, your word isn't hidden under the mattress at home. In fact, your word is in my heart and that's a secure vault. Nothing is going to escape this heart. Oftentimes when we think of hiding the word of God, people usually think, well, the psalmist is speaking about memorization, isn't he? He's saying, learn the whole of Psalm 119 and be able to recite it from beginning to end. I'd love to be able to do that. I'd love to be able to memorize scripture more than I already can. And at one level, it's absolutely right to think that learning scripture, of course, is helpful, but it goes much further than that. There's no doubt that it's good to remember Scripture. There's no doubt that it's good to trawl out Scripture in those moments in life when we need it to bless ourselves or to bless another person. But memorization for memorization's sake surely is not the end goal of engaging with Scripture. It's foolish builder stuff again at one level, isn't it? It's possible to fill our heads with Scripture and not allow that Scripture to drop the 12 inches into our hearts to bring any kind of transformation. In verse 11, the psalmist is using this word hide to mean to be so full of the Bible that it becomes part of who you are and what controls you. Oftentimes in the Western world, it's not so all over the world, some people refer to the center of uh, our our world as being in the liver. We speak about it being in our hearts, that sense that the heart is the the human control, control center. It's what makes you, you. Now that may or may not be right, but that's what we think here in the West. And the psalmist is saying, look, fill the center of you with the Bible, just like you'd spill a, fill a sponge with water. Soak your hearts in the things of God. Marinate your heart in the things of God. Allow the Word of God to shape your thinking, your words, your values, your emotions. Fill your heart to the point of saturation point with the Word of God. It's really interesting to me that just before Jesus tells the story of the wise and the foolish builders, in a bit of a head-to-head he's having with the Pharisees, Jesus says this, Out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. Now, of course, he was challenging the Pharisees about the negativity that poured out of their mouth, but the opposite is also true. Out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. In other words, what you fill your heart with is ultimately what's going to flow out of your mouth. Now, I realize that's a worrying thought for some of us. It gets me into trouble an awful lot what pours out of my mouth. But what you fill your heart with will ultimately pour out of you. And in Psalm 119, the the psalmist is recognizing that reality as well. In verses 12 to 16, he goes on to talk about it. Again, from the message, I've banked your promises in the vault of my heart so I won't sin myself bankrupt. Be blessed, God. Train me in your ways of wise living. I'll transfer to my lips all the counsel that comes from you. I'll transfer to my lips all the counsel that comes from you. It's like the psalmist is saying, look, fill my heart with the Bible so it becomes part of my DNA, part of everything I think and speak and feel and love and do. So how does a person thrive in a God-honoring life? It's a game of hide and seek. First, we seek. Secondly, we hide. And then thirdly, we're called to ponder. In the psalm, verse 15, the psalmist says, I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. 
I meditate, I ruminate, I contemplate, I muse, I ponder. You can choose whichever word you like, whichever one of those words you choose, you cannot do it quickly in life. It's very difficult, isn't it, to, to, monitor, to, to, to media, um, meditate, to ruminate, to contemplate, to muse, to ponder at speed. And that's a challenge for most of us who live in a fast-paced world. It's definitely a challenge in my world. I wonder if you can remember, do you remember the last time you were driving down the road at 90 miles an hour? Does anyone remember that? Hands up. Oh, strange, no hands going up. But actually what you'll discover is if you drive at 90 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, what do you see out of the window? You will have seen nothing but a blur as the world quickly passes you by. And in a sense, the challenge from the psalmist this morning is to pull into the slow slow lane, to to do life more slowly, maybe better still to to pull into a lay-by. If we seek to engage with God's word at 100 miles an hour, all we will see is a blur. If we seek to engage with the word of God when we're surrounded by distractions, all we'll hear is those distractions. You can understand why the psalmist calls us to meditate or to ponder because you can't do those things in a hurry. In our psalm, the psalmist's meditation, his pondering leads him to a brilliant place. It leads him to a place of delight. When we slow down, when we meditate on God's word, when we ponder, we will be led to a place of delight. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to do the journey of faith at 100 miles an hour, and it rarely works. It's an easy thing to do, isn't it? How many times have you multitasked as you've tried to read the Bible, doing the washing up, or having a shower, or trying to look after children, grandchildren, whatever? How many times on your Bible app have you been distracted by the text message or the social media post that pops up to give you a a notification whilst you're engaged with God's Word? How often have you found yourself doing things to God, for, for God, at the expense of actually spending time with God? A few weeks back, Jesus had something to say about that, didn't he? To Mary and to Martha, you might recall. The kind of meditation or pondering that the psalmist is speaking here is not that kind of new age meditation where we empty our mind of everything. But instead, this is about slowing down and stopping and filling our minds with the Word of God. Because what we fill our minds with will ultimately drop into our hearts and what fills our hearts will ultimately spill out of our mouths. There's a brilliant scientific word, I think, that describes all that the psalmist is saying here in this psalm, and it's the word absorption. We're to become so absorbed by the Word of God that we experience the change and the delight that the psalmist is speaking of in our lives. We need to be absorbed by the Word of God as the people of God. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, perfectly captured what the psalmist was talking about in one of his sermons. It's quite a long quote, but it's worth hearing. It's of its day. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God, he said, and get that word into ourselves. As I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we do with the word of the Lord, not crawl ever its surface, but eat right into it until we've taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts. But it's blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in a scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models 
And what's better still, your spirit is flavoured with the words of the Lord. You're fashioned. Your very style is based on Scripture. Your heart, your spirit becomes flavoured with the words of the Lord. Spurgeon goes on to talk about being so full of Scripture that if someone were to come along and try and pop you like a balloon or stab you with with something sharp, he says this, why this man is a living Bible, prick him anywhere and his blood is bibline to the very essence of the Bible flows out of him. He cannot speak without quoting a text for his very soul is full of the Word of God. Never before in the whole of history have we had so many resources and books at our disposal to engage with the Word of God. We're without excuse today to dig into Scripture, but it's a pursuit. It's a game of hide and seek. We need to seek out the things of God. We need to hide the Word of God in our hearts. And we need to slow life down to be able to spend some time to ponder, to ruminate, to meditate. The beginning of a good year is always, uh, New Year is always a good time, isn't it? To commit yourself to scripture reading. And I think if there's one challenge I want to leave us with today, it's yes to use all of the books. Yes to use every app that's at your disposal. Yes to use Bible reading plans. But the best thing we can do is pick up God's word and read it in its purest sense. Maybe there's a challenge for some of us today. To allow the word of God to be hidden in our hearts so it changes us from the inside outwards, would we be a people who delight in the word of the Lord? Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for uh, the psalmist. I want to thank you that he wrestles with an incredible question that most of us have wrestled with. Lord, how can we live a life that pleases you? Thank you that he doesn't give a simple answer. Thank you, Lord, that he doesn't give a surface answer. In so many ways, I kind of wish he would. It would make the journey of faith so much simpler. And yet it seems to me, Lord, that so often you work out the journey of faith in a slow cooker. It's not a microwave experience. And Lord, my prayer for each of us today is that we would leave the microwave alone. That, Lord, we would spend time meditating marinating perhaps in the slow cooker of your word that will be changed from the inside outwards as we engage with it, that we will be a people who delight in your word as the psalmist delights. Lord, I thank you for the journey we've taken over the last few weeks. Lord, for different ones of us in different ways, we'll have been challenged about these four different areas of our walk with you. Lord, this morning, even now, in these moments, just by your Spirit, just bring to mind perhaps that one thing that we need to learn and we need to apply to our journey. That our journeys would be more straight lines than curvy, wiggly lines. And Lord, this morning, we thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that your grace is sufficient even for those times when we get it wrong. And we stand on that grace this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.